It's certainly good to see each one and thankful especially to the visitors here tonight. We've been looking at lessons to do with the family, lessons to do with marriage on Sunday. In the last few nights we've been talking about um, God's Word and guiding us with our children and, uh, and, and hopefully thinking about it from several angles and, and trying to really draw deeply from God's Word and not just sort of settle in on maybe one or two passages that specifically speak of marriage or that specifically speak of parents and children, but, but more fully incorporate God's Word into our mentality. Um, you know, I, I really think that we do ourselves a disservice when we approach the Bible like it's a reference book. Like you could just get out your concordance and you want to you study a certain topic and you go flip through your concordance about parents. Well, you're not going to get all the verses that would help you really to be good parents. Um, husbands and wives, we're going to miss out on sort, certain examples and principles that, that really we can bring into the marriage that are broader than just marriage. And so I, I think um, studying the Bible more deeply and more thoroughly are going to help on that. And that's why, that's one of the reasons last night we went over to Jeremiah chapter 35, um, because I think, you know, kind of going somewhere where we don't normally go uh, to get the kind of information we need kind of helps it push us in that direction. I want to talk tonight about um, a subject that I think we probably don't talk enough about, um, and that is dating. Um, the reason I think we don't, we do it at camps a lot because we've got a bunch of young people there. And so we talk directly to them, but I think maybe we don't talk enough to parents about dating. Uh, and really, parents are the ones that need to be particularly involved. Now, I'm, I'm all about convincing young people about these principles. Um, but I think parents need to be convinced of principles. And I want to say at the outset that as we look through God's Word on this topic, that um, I, I want you to think with me from the standpoint of, of two things, two things to keep in mind. Number one is that we, we say we are people... Of authority, we talk about authority a lot in uh, among God's people, rightly so. I want to say you know, whatever God says, that's what I want to do. Whatever He doesn't say, that's that's what I want to leave leave unsaid. You know, we speak where God speaks. We we're silent where He's silent. I think those are appropriate principles. I want to speak like Jesus. That that when when my Father speaks, that's when I act, and when He doesn't speak, that's when I stand still. On the subject of dating, I think we really need to bring that principle into play. I think a lot of times we think if God doesn't say much about a subject, then we can just sort of dismiss and just sort of make up our own rules, just do whatever we want to. And a lot of t times what that means is we'll kind of just co-opt what the world's doing, try to sanctify it a little bit, and then make it our own. I'd much rather just start with a blank slate and say, what, what does God say about this? Set aside everything the world says. What does God say? And then maybe come back and evaluate what the world's doing about that. And a lot of times what that means, I'm going to end up with something pretty radically different than what maybe I've gotten used to. So think about that. The other thing that I really want you to think about is just because you went through a certain process or I went through a certain process, and in the end, maybe through uh, any number of, for any number of reasons, things have turned out well, that doesn't mean that the process that you went through to get where you are is the best process. 
So a lot of times people will say, you start preaching about subjects that have to do with when we grew up, then somebody will say, well, I did this and I turned out okay. Let me, that is such a foolish, foolish argument for a number of reasons. There are a lot of harmful things that happen to us that don't necessarily do permanent damage. But that doesn't mean we'd recommend those things, right? Like if you caught your kid getting into the cabinet under the sink and drinking some chemical, maybe they, they drank some bleach one day when you got home. You called poison control and you went through all of that and whoosh, everything turned out okay and, and nobody got seriously injured. I don't think you'd then write a parenting book saying my kid drank bleach and it turned out fine. You wouldn't recommend that sort of behavior just because you survived it. And I think we do that sometimes. Y'all talk about, you know, immorality in high school, maybe talk about the prom and some of the things that happened there. People say, oh, I went to the prom and I turned out fine. First of all, that may be, that may be a, a discussion we need to have, whether you did turn out fine. Maybe you don't have a good attitude about sexual immorality, but, but setting that aside, maybe it didn't scar you as, as much but that doesn't mean that that was a good decision. And I think sometimes we, we feel like we have to defend all of our decisions along the way. As Christians, of all people, we ought to be willing to say, my past decisions are, are, are not the thing I defend most. God's Word's what I defend most. And I'm willing to admit any faults along the way. I don't have to defend those because where there are mistakes, they are washed in the blood of Christ. So I don't, I don't need to hold on. I don't need to defend my life as if it's perfect. I know it's not. So I, I hope with that in mind, you're kind of keep an open mind about what God's word has to say on the subject. Well, Proverbs chapter four and verse 23 is a, is a verse I keep in mind when I think about things like this. Watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Keep your heart with all diligence, some of your translations will say. I like that even a little bit better. The idea is holding on to that and not just being free, not freely giving away your heart. That is a premise that I think is a good place to start because I think in many ways we live in a world that, that sort of counsels being free with your heart, giving it away all over the place, like throwing it out there on the Internet. And letting everybody know what's in your heart and what's on your heart. Giving people access to your heart. A lot of times one of the things that we talk about when we talk about dating is the heartbreak that goes along with it. I know there's going to be heartbreak. I'm not trying to save people from all heartbreak. But boy, I think we could reduce a lot of it. I think we could reduce a lot of the damage that we do to our hearts if we were a little bit more guarded about how free we were. If we gave our hearts only completely to God... And then in another sense, on the human plane, only completely, completely to one person. Oh, couldn't we save a lot of heartaches? I think so. Well, let's think through the, the idea of dating then. And let me just start with some definitions, all right, because we define things differently. And, and, and this is part of the problem. Like when we start talking about dating, we're talking about it over a series of generations. And so maybe you've got somebody in their 70s and then somebody that's in their 40s and then somebody's in their 20s. And we all mean really different things when we start talking about dating. I want to be very general in my definition here because I'm covering a broad spectrum of, of notions. When I refer to dating... I mean an exclusive romantic relationship between a man and woman or a boy and a girl 
And you can call that any number of things. It gets called a number of things. We, we used to call it going together or being a boyfriend and a girlfriend or going steady or Facebook official, whatever you want to call it. It's a relationship where, where you've sort of, you've made some level of commitment. You said we're an exclusive thing. We're an exclusive item. I don't care what you call that. You know, and you might say, well, we call it going together. Like my mom used to say, well, where are you going? Sometimes you're not even going anywhere. You can't drive. You can't. But you already have formed an attachment. And so that's what I mean. It can happen long before you can actually go places. And especially with the communication that we have nowadays, you can really form some tight relationships before you're able to physically go on dates even. But it does usually involve going places with each other on a regular basis, without anyone else, exclusive to each other. And it involves varying degrees of expressions of physical and emotional affection. And so I want to talk about all those elements. The exclusivity, the expressions of affection, what's appropriate between men and women from God's word. Well, let me start here. Um, the general approach that we take to dating in modern America is, is pretty unique to history. Like, if you just study all of human history that we're capable of studying, our approach to dating would only be about 100 years old. In fact, it would be tied pretty closely to the invention of the automobile, um, incidentally. And because the automobile began to give us some levels of freedom that up to that point we did not have. And, and so some people sort of see correlation there, and maybe there's even some causation there. But at any rate, before that, um, the, it was much more of a family affair. Um, and, and so we saw more involvement with the parents, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. I'll tell you what certainly is not the case. Like, if you're looking for, like, a single place in the Bible that carries any sort of resemblance to modern day, you will not find it. It's just not there. The notion of, of a guy approaching a girl casually asking if she wants to go do something. and That's just, just not in the Bible. In fact, what is in the Bible um, is, incidentally, arranged marriages. Now, you might think, are you about to advocate arranged marriages? I'm not about to not advocate arranged marriages, but not necessarily I am going to advocate that very hard. I will say this. They may not have been so overbearing as you think. In Genesis chapter 24... In Genesis chapter 24, for example, there in verse 8, it says there, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, this is, of course, you might remember Abraham sending his servant to go find a bride for Isaac. And as he sends her, he says, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this my oath only do not take my son back there. He doesn't say, go grab a woman and bring her back here whether she wants to or not. This is not seven brides for seven brothers. This is, this is go and see if there's some woman who is willing to consent to come and marry my son. Later on in that same chapter in verse 58, Genesis 25 and verse 58, we see the, the negotiations have already sort of taken place between the servant and, and the, the father and a brother of Rebekah says they, they then called Rebekah and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So again, 
the, the conversation's been had, but then Rebecca comes in and they don't say, hey, we've made a deal. You better saddle up. Are you interested in this? Would you like to be a part of this? Now, I know you might say, you might look across the, the spectrum of history and say, well, that's not all the way, that's not the way it was all the time. I know, but biblically speaking, here is a prime example of an arrangement of marriage, and it's not just, you know, some woman being clubbed over the head. It does involve parents, and it does involve those kinds of conversations. But it's not like that doesn't involve the young lady in this case. And so I think we need to maybe adjust our mindset on that sometimes, uh, not to think so that that's so uh, backwards, and maybe we can make some adjustments into a modern context and, and still at least learn something from those notions. Over in First Thessalonians, in First Thessalonians chapter four, and in verse six. As, as he is speaking here about sexual purity, um, that you abstain from sexual morality, he says in verse 3. Coming down to verse 6, he says that no man trans- transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the, the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Um, here he's counseling, or not counseling, but instructing, commanding, uh, abstinence against sexual immorality and one of the motivating factors there's really two motivating factors he gives here one is the judgment of God the other is don't do this to your brother now I don't think he's talking about homosexuality here I think he's talking about sexual immorality with a woman but then he mentions the brother what's going on there and I think the idea is that is the notion that that this woman would be under the protection of of particularly the men of her household. And that, that you are, it's, it's sort of like saying, how would you like somebody to do that to your sister? And so that's not, that's not barbaric. I mean, that's really valuable. Why well, tell you, there's a lot, of pe- a lot of ladies that could use some protection from their brothers and their fathers these days. And so it's, it's really a beautiful notion that uh, a man would, would have that regard and that respect for a woman's father and her brothers, and that he would not want to rob something that that is under their protection. So I think those are not those those should not be notions that we are afraid of. I will say this: What if the only pattern that was laid out in the scriptures is that the father had absolute sway over these matters? If that's what I found here. Well, that's just what we'd have to do. And I think that's one of the things, you know, people people like come to the table saying there's certain things they won't do. Well, then you can't have a relationship with God. God says, I'm, I'm it. I make all the rules. I give you all the advice. And so I want to come not saying, now listen, I'll do this, I'll follow this unless. No, there is no unless. Not if you're a Christian. If we're Christian, wherever Christ leads, that's where I'll follow. So, I would want to be open even to that degree if that's what I found in scriptures. Well, let's think about some foundations then about romantic relationships between, uh, between males and females, between boys and girls, men and women. First of all, I would say that as you read all the way through God's word, 
you will never find room in God's Word. You'll never find a, a romantic relationship, an appropriate romantic relationship, that doesn't have marriage as a consideration. What I mean is, we look at dating very often recreationally. Like, it's just... We're, Somebody, uh, you know, my daughter might say, I'm thinking about going out with this boy. And I'd say, well, tell me about that. Oh, it's nothing. Well, then the answer is no. Now, if that you'd like to go out with a group of people, or, are we having an exclusive thing where we're going to romantically have fun? Romance is not for fun. Romance is for marriage. Now, I may need to restate that. Romance can be fun. But it's for marriage. It's not simply for recreation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and in verse 9, he says there, well, verse 8, beginning to the unmarried and to the widows, uh, I say to them that it is good for them if they remained even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passions. When we begin to, to experiment romantically, the idea is that, that, that the goal there is marriage. That's where that's headed. Otherwise, you stay away from that. So those are your two options. You're either headed towards marriage or you're staying away from romance. It's not the idea of I want a romantic partner but not necessarily a spouse. So if, if, if you can't find that, if you can't find sort of a, um, a, a romantic attachment that's not moving towards marriage in the scriptures, then I don't want that. And so I would conclude then if you are not looking for marriage, then, then you say, what about dating? Don't. And that would be my rule. You say, I'm just, I'm just not ready for marriage. Then you're not ready for dating, which is the thing that leads to marriage. So if you're not ready for marriage, then what you're saying is, I'm going to be in a permanent state of opening up doors that lead to marriage without being able to go there. That's not a good place to be in. Paul talks about the difficulty of being in that position right here in 1 Corinthians 7. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean not ready in the near future. I don't mean I'll be ready in the next 10 years. That's not soon enough. You know, to me, that's that's the sort of, like, I worry if I see people in a romantic relationship for 10 years that has not led to marriage. What is going on exactly? And I think that's appropriate concern. What about five years? I'm still kind of worried. You know, to me, when I began to seriously pursue marriage, um, I'm not saying it has to go quickly, but it doesn't have to take very long. And I think we need to be very wary of starting a process and then trying to trying to hold our hands down on that process. Don't awaken things. We'll talk more about that in just a little while. Nowhere in scriptures. Do you see a man approach a woman romantically except for two reasons? For marriage or for sexual immorality. There's, there's no other story that you see in Scripture. You do not see a sort of a, I'm not interested in marriage right now, but no, you always see that notion. And when that conversation begins, and I tell you, reading old literature helps you out here a little bit. Modern literature, not helpful. But reading old literature... Go read some Jane Austen, for instance. I'm not saying you have to, but you might enjoy it. So you go read that. And, and what you see is that when, 
a man begins to carry on romantic conversation with a woman in one of those books. The assumption is a proposal's coming. I mean, it's just assumed by everybody. And a lot of times what will happen in one of those books is maybe that conversation. And that's all. It's not like... It's not like they, they went off somewhere by themselves or, or some tawdry thing happened. I mean, like, literally all he did was say some sweet things to her. And then if he doesn't propose, then that guy's a cad. And I think, oh, where, how far we've come to where you can, I mean, in our modern context for most of the world, not only can you say sweet things, you can engage in all sorts of sexual activity and walk away with no consequences. At least people think there's no consequences. So I think we need to be more careful. Again, guard our hearts. The very engagement of our emotions awakens desires. We talked about this from Song of Solomon the other night. Do not awaken love until she pleases. And so we we want to kind of hold that back. I think another thing is, is the way the Bible talks about marriage. Proverbs 31, I think, gives us some, some interesting insight. Usually we're referring to that when we're talking about you know, a godly woman and we see some characteristics of a godly woman. But, but what's really going on there is some marriage advice is being given. So, so it's not to, the, the advice is not to a woman. It's usually how we teach it, right? So we, Proverbs 31, woman, that's a woman's class, right? But if you, if you look at the beginning, it says the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. So it's a woman talking to her son, and she's the one saying, here's not what you have found, here's what you need to look for. Right? Here's some characteristics. And so, of course, we've got some familiarity with this text beginning in verse 10, and it goes on, describes this woman. But, but look at the description. An excellent wife who can find her worth is far above rubies. And it talks about the trust that they have. But it talks about her industriousness. It talks about it talks about her maturity, her selflessness, her willingness to look around and see things that that can add value to the relationship, and just some some beautiful depictions there. I'll tell you what, that's not talking about many teenagers I know. There's some maturity there. Now, I do believe in, again talking about the course of time. I believe there's a time in which. A lot of teenagers exuded a lot of these qualities. Not as much anymore. We don't prepare people. We're, we're not growing up. We talked about that earlier. We're not growing up as fast as we used to in some ways. In all the wrong ways, we are growing up fast. In all the right ways, we're not growing up at all. But the idea here is that marriage is for people who have formed their character. You can already tell things about You know, I, I'll hear some people say, well, you know, he'll grow up. That's not what this woman is saying to her son. Don't look for a woman who will grow up. Look for a woman you can already tell who she is. You can see the character of this person. You're not guessing at what they'll be like. So, that's maturity. It's for people also who I think are mature enough to be guided. Um, One of the ways that I can tell you, I think, let you know whether a young person is, is ready to date is whether they're ready to listen to what their parents say about that. Are you mature enough? Have you gotten past the point where you think your parents are the dumbest people in the world? You know, Have you gotten to the point where you see that they add value and that they know a lot and they could really help me? Because again, 
Here's King Lemuel's mother who's guiding him. She's the one giving him advice. Hopefully he's listening to that advice. But I think, I think too often what happens is dating begins right at the moment where things are at the most heated between parents and children. They're at that stage where they're getting their independence. And that's the appropriate stage. It needs to be gone through. But we've got to reach an equilibrium there. And then, all right, now we've, we've gotten past that insane point in our lives where we think we can do it all on our own and we've gotten back around to looking at our parents and going, you know, they do know a few things. And now we can kind of enter into this place where I think we need some of the, some of the advice that they can give us is the most important it will ever be in our lives. So I think that is a good kind of barometer. Are we ready for dating? Dating is for people who have developed self-control. Romance is for people who have developed self-control because it is about timing, right? You enter into a relationship. You're not getting married today. And even though I think you need to be ready to be married in the, in the near horizon, it's not going to be at the end of the day today. And so as physical affection grows, there's got to be that ability to walk away um, from the moment of passion. So all through Proverbs, we see that kind of counseling. Walk away from the relationship that would go where it doesn't need to go. In Proverbs chapter 7, uh, the, the warning is against an adulterous woman there. But the idea is, hey, son, listen, when you see these signs, you walk this way. She's, she's pulling you that way. You walk this way. And if you're not ready, if you're not capable of exercising self-control, you know, I think sometimes... Um, a lot of young boys who get involved in sexual morality, which is so easy um, to get involved in because of pulling from so many directions, they think marriage is going to solve that. And, and so very often it's the very opposite. It just exacerbates the problem because now you've involved another person with a problem that you already have. And so if you're not already capable of exercising some self-control, this is not going to help that situation. I think if you've got enough maturity, you need to have enough maturity to look at at women as sisters in Christ, particularly, obviously, uh, our sisters in Christ. I think uh, uh, sometimes young men and and young women go around at, at a certain age to just get boy crazy, girl crazy, and all they see is, is like potential targets, right? It's, it's almost like mentally they're doing the swipe left or swipe right. Some of you younger people will get that reference, right? So it, it, you go in like on the, the dating website and yes, no, yes, no. And what Tim, Tim, uh, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 2, well, beginning verse 1, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, the younger women as sisters, in all purity. You maintain a, a pure view of your sisters in Christ. And, and are you capable of carrying on conversations and relationships without constantly thinking only in romantic terms? If you can't do that, then get a grip on that. And so, 
brothers and sisters being able to look at each other in, in those terms before we begin to go down the path of trying to form uh, romantic relationships. Well, what that means is that I hope some of you might think as you're listening to that, well, sounds like I'm, I'm in the waiting zone, right? That Maybe there's some people here who think that, that I need to wait or my kids need to wait. So what do we do while we're waiting? Um, first of all, I think that we need to have a mindset of learning to be in charge of ourselves, our emotions, our actions. One of the things that happens very often when I talk to young people about dating, or really anybody about dating, is they start using language that really scares me. Anytime somebody says about, about anything, I can't help it. It's just not a good place to be. Because it's not true about most anything. And it is among the first lies that we see told in the Bible. It's not the first one. That's in Genesis 3. But in Genesis chapter 4, that lies implied by Cain. You remember the story there of Cain and Abel. And Cain becomes jealous and God notices his frustration and comes to him in verse 6. It says, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? He says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. And he doesn't, of course. And he goes out in, in conversation with Abel. Presumably his anger rises again and he slays his brother. But the whole notion of who's in control here, you are. That's what God says. When sin is crouching at the door then you have choices to make. And when you go into the dating world, emotions are some of the strongest you will experience in your life. And so if you have a problem figuring out whether or not you're in control of yourself, you're not in control of yourself, and you are pulled in every direction emotionally, like this is the worst place to go. So I think we need to start with the premise and establish that premise. And do you understand what you are that you can decide? You can't even decide where to steer and how to steer your emotions. It doesn't mean you can like you can decide whether they swell up or not, but you can decide how to guide those emotions instead of being guided by them. I think another thing that we need to learn uh, about while we're waiting is how to love people instead of just learning how to fall in love with people. Know how to love people. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 46, very familiar territory here. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Can I suggest, suggest to you that I know that's well-trodden territory, that we all know that verse, but I think at times that is absolutely descriptive of every one of us. That is the easiest and most comfortable thing in the world to just love people back. To give love in return for the love that we have received. Sometimes it's even hard to do that. But he doesn't say that's enough. He says, I need you to go above and beyond that. And I, I mean, from a very early age, I mean, raising my children, one of the things I hear most frequently from my girls is, 
but she, right? So I come in and I see some mistreatment uh, and I say, what are you doing? Well, but she did this. In other words, I'm going to defend my ill treatment of her, right? We all do that. We do it as adults. We get a little bit more refined in our arguments, but we, we say much the same things very often. You wouldn't believe the way he spoke to me or, or what have you. If you cannot learn to love people when they are not loving you, marriage is going to be rough. Because it's just some days where you don't, where, where it's just not floating around in the air and you're not joined at the soul and everything's not just easy and it's hard work. And a lot of times people, all they know how to do is fall in love, is respond to that emotion that just draws them in. God calls us to more than that. And, and if he calls us to that with the world, then surely he calls us to that in marriage. And if we have a hard time doing that before marriage, we'll certainly have a hard time doing that in marriage. I think another thing while we're waiting is that people, and I, I, let me just say, I think this is a point of emphasis that I think doesn't get made enough. People need to learn to find satisfaction between themselves and God absent another person. When people who are married say, I'd be lost without her, I'd be lost without him, that sounds very romantic. And to some degree, I I certainly can get on board with that. I mean, I I would feel a, a great emptiness without my wife. But I think some people really mean, and and I've seen it happen, that they would fall apart because their identity is utterly and completely wrapped up in that other person. I think God certainly wants uh, a relationship that is like no other. The two shall become one flesh. It is understood and appropriate that there would be pain without that person. I think in the very garden, God uh, approaches Adam and helps him, allows him to see that something is missing, companionship is missing, and so marriage is, is God's intention and all of those things. And, and yet, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and verse 29, as Paul is talking about marriage, he says, But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. What does he mean? This is the same Apostle Paul who's talked about in Ephesians chapter 5 how we ought to be willing to lay down our lives for our spouses, that wives ought to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. I mean, and then he comes and says, You ought to act like you're not married. Sort of a weird thing. Um, when you read uh, s- sort of religious literature over the years, there's an interesting thing that people have done. They've romanticized the story of Adam and Eve. Milton, John Milton did this in, in Paradise Lost. Romanticized the relationship between Adam and Eve such that what happens is Eve partakes of the fruit and, and Adam, in, in a romantic gesture, says, I don't want to be in paradise without you. And so that he partakes of the fruit so that he can continue to be with his wife. It's, it's, it's like, I would go to hell for you. I think that is a horrific picture. And I don't think that's accurate to the story, but regardless, even if it was accurate to the story, 
I don't think that's precious. I, I hear love songs. There are songs like that. I'd, I'd go into the darkness with you. Wherever you go, I would go. I want to say to my wife, uh, I will go wherever I can with you so long as we're both headed to heaven. You head that way. You're, you're on your own. You see, my relationship to my wife, as close and as beautiful as I hope that to be, could never be what the world thinks of that. The world, ironically, at the same time that the world cheapens marriage, it elevates this this sort of relationship to a point that you ought to be willing to destroy yourself for your your spouse. Paul says, no, no, no. There ought to be a degree of separation there. That it's clear God comes first. And if that began to get shaky, I would never follow my wife away from God. Families like are like this in general. And I remember one time when our family was going through a difficult time and we had a, a big family gathering. I mean, my, like my whole extended family, my grandparents are there, my aunts and uncles. And we're talking about, you know, how to deal with some, some struggles that are going on. And my uncle Martin, he said, I love all of you. I would not go to hell for any of you. And that's, that's what our attitude needs to be. And if, if I lose my wife, God is still there. And if you don't have that kind of like satisfaction before you get married, I think getting married can be dangerous for you for a number of reasons. First of all, they could come before God. But, but even uh, additionally, you can expect them to be God for you. You can expect them to fill a hole that they cannot fill. They cannot be perfect. They're going to disappoint you. But you're looking for somebody who will never disappoint you, never let you down, who will always have that cheerfulness and, and love you even on your worst days. And yes, they're supposed to do that, but they won't always. I tell some people that, that seem to be looking for that, so you need to get a dog, not a spouse. Dogs, just, as long as you feed them and pet them, they're going to love you. People are going to be imperfect. And so you can't have perfect perfection expectations. You have to have that with God. And when you find satisfaction with God, that's going to make marriage so much more really enjoyable. It's interesting that that degree of separation, that degree of understanding that my ultimate satisfaction comes from God does not make our marriage more distant. It allows us to be more accepting of each other. And have a better marriage as a result. Well, all of that is pointing in the direction of, hey, don't date. Wait, wait, wait. I always tell people, especially young people when I'm preaching this, that I know you're not going to listen to me. And I know you're probably going to go on dates anyway. Okay. So with a few minutes that we have left, let me point to a few things about when you do date. When you begin to date, make sure that you do not follow the notion of following your heart wherever it leads you. Be more decisive and and be more thoughtful about the person you're dating. We could use people being more critical before they say I do and a whole lot less critical after they say I do. But we would completely reverse that. We ignore everything before and then we notice everything after. 
It's disaster on both ends most of the time. In Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 is a familiar verse. The heart is more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's a pretty pessimistic view of things, but it's a realistic view of things. We are not good judges when our heart is, is swelled with emotion. And so we really have to pull back and we really have to evaluate. Along those lines, I think there are a couple of things that we can do to help that out. First of all, we can ask other people. We talked about that. Are you listening to your parents? We can genuinely look for the advice of other people. Look for the advice of mom and dad. And so over in um, Proverbs chapter 11, Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 14 It says there, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there is victory. Now, sometimes people are giving the advice and we're not listening. I, I, I talked to a friend one time. He'd been dating this, this young lady and, and he just seemed so miserable. And, and people told him that. And he just he was heartsick over her and he wanted, he wanted to make her happy. But she was a determined uh, person who... who seemed to be determined not to be happy, you know, and just demanding and, and never satisfied. And so people would say things to him all along the way. And, and when that relationship finally ended, fortunately, before they entered into marriage, I told him, I said, and you just look so happy for the first time in a very long time. And he said, why didn't people, he said, you're like the fifth person to say that to me. Why didn't people tell me that? And I said, you did. You had deaf ears. You just you, you just absorbed yourself in that. You couldn't hear anything. Make sure you keep your ears open. And don't be offended. Like, I know that some parents, I, I do realize, like there are mothers for which there is there is no good woman for her little boy. And there are fathers for which there is no good man for her little I say those kind of things to my girls. You know, Dave Ramsey says about his little girls, he said, I told them there are no good men except Jesus and your daddy. And, and, and I get that, and that's funny. But as my girls get older, I let them know that's not, that's not true. And in fact, now I've got a 16-year-old, almost 17-year-old daughter. We talk about that. What do you think about that young man over there? I think he's pretty nice. Okay, good. I agree. I'm glad we're on the same page. What about that one? I don't know about him. Me either. And so we, we keep those open. I mean, we're not even talking about dating. We're just kind of looking around. What do you think about these fellows over here? That guy's a nice guy, but he's a goof off. I don't know where he's headed. Yeah, good, good. I want to hear where her mindset is. I tell you what you don't want to do as parents is wait till the heat of the moment before you start any of those conversations. Because then the ears aren't trained to be opened. But if you're on the other end of that, Go ahead and train your ears to be listening to those counselors. Not just your parents, but your friends. And don't just go to your friends who are going to say things like, oh, you are so cute together. If the only thing you ever hear from people is like the best compliment on your relationship is you're so cute together, that's not going to get you through. Like you want to hear things like, well, I tell you what, that's a godly young lady you're dating there. I think you will be very helpful to each other. You know, actual character issues. Who cares about the surface mentality? Train your heart 
love God, and you will be drawn to other people who love the same. Over in Psalm 37, and in verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I I will say that is a a, a verse that Oprah Winfrey apparently likes to to quote frequently. I don't think she's quoting it in the same way that, that I would quote that. And her idea is like just, in a, she loosely thinks about the first part, delight yourself in the Lord, and then really is heavy on the, and he will give you all the desires of your heart. But understand what he's saying here. If you want the Lord more than anything else, you'll get what you want more than anything else. You see, it's the Lord. That's what you're going to get. So, I talked to young men and, and young ladies about the question of dating non-Christians, right? If you're a Christian and, and I'm attracted to this young man over here, well, let me ask you, are you attracted to him because you have made the Lord your delight? Is that is that what's drawing you together? And usually the answer is no. I mean, rarely is somebody going, oh yeah, yeah, that's what's drawing me together. It's, it's other interests. It's other commonalities. And I understand those things are helpful. Those things are good. But if you start there, you know, people will say, I'm looking for this. I'm like, well, look for God and you'll find other people who are looking for him too. Instead of like turning your attention on boys or turning your attention on girls, turn your attention to him. And all along, you'll be like, oh, hey, I didn't notice you there. I just one thing my wife says is that we we met when she decided to stop looking. She said, you know, I'm just going to start worrying about my relationship with God. And and it, it it lowered the pressure. And it opens up doors of opportunity. What about physically? When you're dating, the question I always get from young people, how far is it okay to go? Well, I'm going to kind of come back to the point I made at the beginning. How far is it okay to go? To marriage. That's where you're headed, right? So physically, how far is it okay to go? Well, I want you to think where we're headed is marriage. And I say that because I don't want to speak about uh, the act of sexual intimacy as if it is dirty, right? Marriage is where you're headed. So that's where intimacy leads to. And so I really want to emphasize that point when we're talking about physical interaction. Understand that is the purpose of physical interaction is marriage. We're not meant to fool around outside of marriage and and begin to practice intimacy outside of marriage. We're working towards marriage and that's where the intimacy truly is. So I want to think in those terms. And just to repeat from Song of Solomon, three times that phrase is used, do not awaken love until she pleases. Can you go there? Is that a possibility? Is that on the horizon? No, she can't please right now. Then don't wake it up. And if you can't go there, then anything is too far. Because anything is opening up doors that you can't walk through. But what about a stopping point until marriage? Are there, are there any boundaries we can draw or any kind of notions that can help us draw boundaries? I think there may be some thoughts. In the first place, uh, a place that I go sometimes, just as you're reading through a story, you, you pick up 
little elements of the story that may be helpful. In Genesis chapter 26 is one of those places, I think. Genesis chapter 26, you have the story of Isaac and Rebekah. And here, Isaac is following the pattern of his father, uh, Abraham, and lying about Rebekah being his wife. And so when they come into a territory, Abimelech, um, who is... Uh, uh, a king of the same territory that, that Abraham uh, lied to in Genesis chapter 20. So there they are, he lies, and, and Abimelech takes Rebekah as his wife. But then in verse 8, it says there, It came about, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife Rebekah. Now, he, Abimelech, is inside. He's looking out a window into a public place. And what he sees in public is Isaac and Rebekah interacting with each other in a way that makes it clear they're not brother and sister. They have to be more than brother and sister. Um, I was making this point, and some young people sort of scoffed. And said, well, I mean, I wouldn't hold my sister's hand. Okay. I mean, I I would. I did hold my sister's hand at times. I'll say this. I held my sister's hand different than I would hold my wife's hand. Or at least there was difference, you know, you, you could kind of tell. Um, my sister might massage my shoulders. Not the same way my wife does. I would hug my sister, not the same way I would hug my wife. I would even kiss my sister, certainly not the same way I would kiss my wife. There are distinctions. And I think that we can show even physical affection, but I tell you what, I, I think as we look back through history, that line was way safer than anything that we're looking at today. Here is a line that has been crossed that clearly indicates marriage in public. Do you think, you know, I, I would say this. If you, if it's something you would feel uncomfortable doing with a bunch of people standing around, maybe that's a good line. Or even better, what I like to say is, if it's something you'd be uncomfortable with her father or his mother in the room. Maybe that's a good line. Because we're all too comfortable with the physical. And we're all too willing to draw some really arbitrary and I think absurd lines that go way beyond any consideration of the sort of uh, carefulness that we see in the scriptures. We've, we've blown out Paul's Paul's encouragement to Tim Timothy to look at these women as sisters in all purity. And let me just say, until she's your wife, she's your sister. I also say this to young people. Whatever line you cross, I hope it's one that if you didn't get married, you wouldn't be embarrassed to have crossed. Is it, is it something that you could look at this woman on the day of her wedding and not be ashamed at anything that you did if you decide not to get married. I'll tell you one of the biggest lies 
in all of this is people say, well, we're going to get married. How many times have I heard that? And then they don't. And there's shame and regret that lives with people for a very long time. And what a blessing it would be to look back and say, I have no, I have no regrets about that. I'm not embarrassed at anything that I did. I can look at that woman today and we can have a, a normal relationship knowing that we, I did not steal anything from her and she did not give anything to me that was not hers to give, like we talked about from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So, ultimately, in order to draw a line, what we've got to do is not think about the moment, where strategically, where, where do we draw the line, but rather start thinking, like, look around you. Start thinking about moms and dads and brothers and sisters and think about, think about this could be somebody else's wife or husband one day. Draw the line wherever you're comfortable there where you won't have to live with that kind of scarring. We talked about earlier, when you, when you engage in that kind of activity, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about the prostitute. Don't, don't give yourself, don't enter into that kind of relationship with someone that you're not in that kind of relationship with. Don't become one flesh with someone that you have not become one flesh with. Well, that means we're going to take a lot more care all along. People are going to think it's silly. Um, it's so saturated. Uh, I mentioned Jane Austen earlier. We were watching Pride and Prejudice, the movie. I think it's the most recent one that came out. And uh, we're watching through that, and I've watched several versions of that, and, and, and it came to the end and um, Darcy and Elizabeth Bennett come up and they passionately kiss and I, I just I groaned out loud and my girl said, what? These people would never have done this. And they're like, oh, dad. It's for a modern audience. And I said, I know, but a modern audience would do so well to see people acting like they did back then. When I talk to young people about this, they roll their eyes and say, that's ridiculous. Nobody behaves like this. Well, let me just tell you something Wes Brown said. We're going to heaven, which means we're going to look different than everybody. Yes, nobody is doing this because nobody else is on the path we're on. We're going to look really weird and even be hated. But can I tell you that the pleasures are greater and fuller for those who will walk that path? And truly, even if walking that path meant you didn't end up with a mate here, as we talked about earlier, God says, it will be worth it to be with me. Because all of this is not meant to find the greatest relationship you will ever know. It is meant to find the shadow of the greatest relationship that you will ever know. And that goes back to making sure your relationship is right with God from the beginning. I'll say this in closing. 
I feel very strongly about these things. I communicate these things strongly to my children, at least in my house, like we talk about the Rechabites. I make my rules. I'm not here to make hard, fast rules for you. And if you disregard any number of these things, there's room for disagreement here. And I'll sort of leave you with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 28. He says, if you marry, this is after he's given advice not to marry, not to marry because of peculiar circumstances in Corinth. I believe marriage is in and of itself good. But there's a circumstance here. So he's counseled against marriage. He says this, if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Yet, such will have trouble in this life. And I am trying to spare you. That's all. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying that the, the further you get from the, the careful path that we're sort of laying out here, the more likely there is for you to have trouble. I just want to save people from trouble. I want to save them from needless heartache. From silly heartache, really that you'll look back on and roll your eyes and then maybe one day want to save your own children from. But maybe you could set up a pattern of behavior that could begin to, to make a generational, uh, a different generational path. This is the way we're going to do things in our family. We're going we're gonna to talk about these things together. We're going to think about these things together. And we're going to approach this in a way that, that really looks a lot more at this than at the latest romance movie that's come out. I hope that's helpful. Well, I hope again, just as we were talking about marriage, that you do see beyond that relationship, that you don't see that as the ultimate relationship, but that you see God as the ultimate relationship. And I hope that if you don't have that, that you would long for that far more overwhelmingly more such that you don't even think about marriage in in, in, uh, in any way comparable to how you would see God. And if you can see him in that light and you desire a relationship with him perhaps that you do not have or perhaps you need to reconcile in some way that relationship if it's become broken and if we can help you do that this evening uh, we would love to do that if you would let us know how we might help you while we stand and while we sing. I'm not a